I think you're really going to like this episode of STEM. Insider tips for Greenhouse Pros. I'm Bill Calkins, and our guest today returns for part two in a three-part miniseries focused on garden mum production intended to help you produce the absolute best mum crops you possibly can using the newest genetics and latest strategies. Dr. Will Healy is back to talk about the heart of the mum production timeline, digging deep into feeding, planning to hit critical dates, catching problems early, and what to watch for when monitoring crops. Like I mentioned back in episode 30, part 1 of this series, we're not releasing these episodes back to back, but instead when they're most relevant, because many of you listen in real time. This will be a great episode to share with your entire team, because keeping a large seasonal crop on track requires a village. Looking ahead, Dr. Will Healy will be back in a month to continue the timing message and wrap up with finishing tips and tricks to make sure your absolute best garden mum crop is going to market. But first, Connect Four, where we take a look at four points lining up to support one key topic. By definition, botanical gardens are well-tended parks displaying a wide range of plants labeled with their botanical names. They may contain specialist plant collections such as cacti and succulent plants, herb gardens, plants from particular parts of the world, and more. But this definition barely begins to describe today's botanic gardens. Now you can find activities for all ages, kids' gardens, bike and running paths, outdoor concerts, craft and art shows, and so many other activities for everyone. Your local botanic garden can be a fantastic advocate for our products and an effective partner for your business. I encourage you to get to know your local garden and engage with them whenever possible. And encourage your customers, wholesale and retail, to do the same. Here are four reasons your local botanic garden is an awesome place to visit and send customers to, according to the Thrifty Fun blog. First, access to unique plant collections and varieties. At the heart of every botanic garden is its unique collection of plants, and the opportunity for visitors to get a close-up look at interesting plant species they might not otherwise be able to see in the area. Some botanical gardens exist for the sole purpose of acquiring and maintaining large collections of regional native species, and others specialize in tropical plants, medicinal plants, rare and endangered species, or plants of historical significance. Next, the discovery of new ideas and information. Botanic gardens work hard to install an appreciation for the role plants play in supporting the Earth's ecosystem and the quality of human life. One way they do this is by offering a wide array of educational programs to their visitors. From basic gardening to botanic sketching, you'll find classes and plant-based education programs geared for every interest and every age. And as an industry professional, you might find opportunities to share your knowledge and skills by teaching or leading classes and workshops. Third, the opportunity to support plant conservation. It's estimated that there are 270,000 plant species in the world and one in eight are threatened with extinction. Current threats to plant diversity include habitat loss and degradation and the introduction of alien species, overexploitation, pollution and disease, and global climate change. By visiting a botanic garden, not only are you helping support the important conservation work being done to preserve and protect the world's plant species, but you're helping to address poverty and human well-being. And the final chip in our game of Botanic Garden Connect 4 is the fact that these serene spaces provide a temporary escape from the blahs of everyday life. Perhaps the best reason to visit a botanic garden is to simply slow down and reconnect with the natural world. Are you looking for an uplifting experience for you and your family? Strolling through an indoor arboretum filled with blooming tropical plants can be a great way to lift spirits. Now, Let's get down to business with part two in a three-part mini-series on producing your best mum crop ever. As Senior Manager of Technical Services, Dr. Will Healy is responsible for developing production programs and operational efficiencies that produce consistent, high-quality young plants. He works with ball companies and customers throughout the world, training their staff in cutting-edge production practices. Over the last 30 years, Will has developed innovative operational approaches and scheduling programs that reduce shrink, improve operational efficiencies with reduced crop times. 
Will's current research emphasis focuses on reducing shrink throughout the supply chain from our seed and cutting producers all the way through our customers' retail operations. As growers move to performance-based trading, managing shrink has become the new ticket to play for growers at all levels. Since shrink must be evaluated holistically, Will has developed tools to optimize the product assortment, strategies that reduce buffer requirements, production techniques and process improvements to increase yields, and grower training to improve uniformity and overall quality. A key to Ball's success in young plant production has been the development of product standards and procedures to ensure consistent performance. Working with growers, Will has developed protocols that ensure consistent supplies for customers. These procedures involve operational, software, and plant culture aspects since no one aspect will ensure consistent supply. As the author of more than 400 ball culture advisors, Will is well-versed in crop production. Before coming to ball, Will was a faculty member at the University of Maryland and Colorado State University, where he published more than 30 scientific publications on floriculture production. Will received his Ph.D. from the University of Minnesota working with Harold Wilkins, and, as you know, at Minnesota, he did a lot of work with garden moms. Will's a past guest covering watering in a two-part episode, which I'll link to in the show notes, and this episode is number two in a three-part miniseries focused on garden mum productions. Expect Will to be a frequent guest on STEM, covering many relevant and timely topics going forward. Will, welcome back to STEM. Well, thanks a lot, Bill. It's good to be here. Um, thankfully, it stopped raining for a couple of days here, so maybe we can um, actually see a little sun and get a little growth here on our mums. That's for sure. It's been a crazy rainy spring and summer. I know I know we're going to get into that a little bit when we're talking about uh, this season's mum uh, production and how it started. But since this is the second part in a series, I just want to quickly remind the listeners to be sure to check out the first part which was episode 30, where Dr. Healy and I kicked off the series on garden mum production by diving deep into the two most critical elements for starting a strong fall mum crop, and that was temperature and feed. So if you haven't already listened to that episode, I actually encourage you to stop now, go back, grab episode 30, and listen to it, because they do build off of each other. But for those who did listen, it might have been a couple months back. So Will, can you give a, a quick recap on the key points that you covered in part one? Sure. I um, even went and listened to it this morning just to kind of remind myself, okay, what did we talk about? And of course, the two big topics um, to get off your mums off to a good, strong um, start is making sure that you've got them warm because you don't want them to go um, form crown buds. And you want to make sure that you're feeding them aggressively so that you can get them to branch and start filling out and get a good strong root systems underneath them because the biggest problem growers have is they're busy and of course this year has been specifically problematic because the season has gone on and on and on um, because of the late start and then suddenly it just took off and now it's just continuing to um, move product that they're maybe not out fertilizing as aggressively or frequently and just hoping that that slow release fertilizer is taking off and providing the nutrients that it needs. When in reality, you really need to go back and think through whether you're getting enough fertilizer on it. And we're going to talk a little bit about this whole issue of are you feeding enough and what should you be feeding later on in this podcast? But feeding the mums is critical if you want to have a good, successful chrysanthemum season. Remember that temperature is also really important because you need to be warm to keep them vegetative. Remember, the, basically, we talked about trying to keep that night temperature um, closer to 70 than 60. And I think that we've had some weather that's basically not been real good for, you know, easily keeping it warm, which is important to keep them good, strong, vegetative. So I remember, I remember that in that first episode, you did mention that, um, you know, certainly on the feed that it's, it's much more difficult to go back and correct the problems than it is to uh, take that, take those extra steps early on. So um, that's great. Thank you for that quick refresher. Uh, from what I understand, talking with you and others, it has been an excellent season, at least for the URC production. Um, it's spring 2019, if you aren't listening in real time. 
And there's been really nice quality. You talked about, you know, when, when we talked earlier about minimal breakdown reported, and that's really great news. So why do you think this is the case and what has to work correctly for such a strong start? Well, I think we've done a lot of um, changes in our overall stock plant management program with our partner down in Florida, who really has done a great job um, both growing the stock, making sure there was enough cuttings, making sure there was enough um, you know, t crop time so that we had the right cuttings harvested at the right time. They did the correct cooler treatments. Um, the cold chain was maintained for a lot of growers all the way to their door from um, with truck delivery. So we basically got out of FedEx um, and got uh, you know much better um, cold chain, which is really important with mums. And I think we just had a healthier mum crop going into our propagation this year than we've had in the past. So I think we're off to a really great start. And now it's really up to the growers to take those um, cuttings and turn them into successful um, finished plants. Awesome. And I know that Ball Seed has invested quite a bit in um, putting together all of these new uh, supplier partners. And certainly it sounds like it's paying off in terms of the stock plant management, all the treatments and the effectiveness of the cold chain. So that is excellent to hear. And I know that the listeners who are taking advantage of ball mums um, are, are certainly going to see the benefits of that. So on the flip side, over the past couple months, have you seen anything in the early days of mum crops as they've uh, been started off in greenhouses across North America that you find particularly concerning? Are there any common challenges worth noting? I have to I mean, you mentioned it early on. I got to believe that this wet and cool spring and summer that we've seen in some of the big markets has been an issue. So for the listeners, this question might seem a little bit specific to the 2019 season, but I'm really interested in what growers can do in seasons like this. Well, actually, I think this information is going to be timeless because every year somebody either gets backed up so they can't get the product transplanted at the right time. They don't have the ability to get it fertilized as aggressively because they're busy shipping. There's all kinds of um, obstacles to a successful uh, mum crop. And of course, this year, I think more people participated in, you know, the the speed bumps of a successful crop than normal. But I think, you know, let's talk about some of these um, issues and what you can do about them because everyone experiences year after, you know, in some year when they're growing mums. First and foremost, of course, is the problem of temperature. Um, you know, what we've seen this year is, is that we've had a lot of um, very cool weather. Um, it wasn't cold. It was just cool, dreary, and dark. Um, and so what happened is, is that uh, if growers weren't putting the heat to them, they probably were starting to see a little bit of crown budding. Also, what was happening is, is that growers got to a point where space became a problem and they had to transplant. So they transplanted, they had to go outside in some cases, and of course they put them outside and of course it was cold. So they basically you know, had everything going good for them in a normal year, everything would be fine. It would normally be warm enough outside at night. But this year, because of the weather um, that passed around the U.S., we basically ended up with <clears throat> colder than desired temperatures that they're going to have to deal with. And we'll talk about, you know, how do you, how do you deal with it if you've got the problem? The other issue that um, was kind of interesting this year is the um, almost monsoon season. You know, where I live um, in southern Ohio, basically we've had more rain than, um, than up to 1871, which was the last time we had this much rain. So a heavy rain, you know, basically you run into um, a challenge, especially outside of, well, you can't water them because, well, they're wet. So if you can't water them, you can't feed them. Um, you know, it's cold, so the slow-release fertilizer most likely is not releasing, or if it is, all of a sudden it's starting to be leached out because it's, it's just so wet out there. So we're running into a situation where the plants really are probably not at their optimum nutrition level just because it's been so wet out. And of course, it's also um, been cold so that they're not growing very vigorously. So you have a lot of challenges facing you as we come into the end of June when you know, some of the early mums really have to be putting on a big push. Our late mums, 
probably we don't have to worry about as much because we still have a lot of growing time to really turn the crop around. So the, in this year, I think we're seeing this um, wet, cold as being one of our problems, but I think everyone has experienced this at some point in their mom um, experience. And if they haven't, guess what? <laughs> they too will participate in it at some time. I think that's a really good way of, of, of putting that relevance together is that every year someone's going to have an issue getting started, no matter if it's weather related or other factors um, can can make it a little bit challenging to get things started. And talking specifically this year about the cool and dark temperatures, early transplant to field in the in the poor conditions, and then certainly the, the heavy rains um, leading to potentially poor nutrition, I think are um, interesting uh, phenomena that are occurring this year. And I know that we're going to discuss some of the ways to correct this or, or get around it as we go through the uh, episode two here today. So let's jump right into the topics for uh, this second part of the Garden Mum series. We're going to focus on successful growing practices resulting in strong plant growth, as well as catching any problems early, um, which again can head off um, a lot of challenges down the road. So can you quickly summarize our goals for the next 30 minutes or so that we're going to be chatting? Okay, so what we want to be doing in the next um, next phase of our mum program, remember the first um, episode, the first episode that we talked about of getting them propagated and making sure that we got the plants off to a good start. This particular episode is really going to focus on how do we make sure that we're on track? How do we know that everything is okay? Because the biggest challenge growers have is, Am I where I need to be? You know, I when I'm out visiting growers, one of the questions that they have when they're looking at their mums is, how are my mums compared to everyone else's mums? And that's a real question in everyone's mind because, you know, too early is no value and too late is no value. You've got to, uh, of course, hit just the right time with the right quality. So that's what we're going to really focus on over the next about 30 minutes is how do we get the right quality at the right um, time to hit the markets that we're trying to achieve. That's going to be a lot to cover. Am I where I need to be? So let's let's jump right in the deep end of the pool and talk about fertilizer because I know that this is um, at least the feed and nutrition of this crop is is hugely critical. So what what types and rates and 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 other factors are appropriate for feeding garden mums at this stage in the game? Assuming that's where you want to get started here. Okay. Well, you know, the first thing I really have to stress at this point is soil testing. You know, not, and everyone should have a pH and EC meter. If you don't have a pH meter, at least get an EC meter. Um, The reason is, is that you really need to know what the EC of that soil is so you know what to do. You know, Bill, everybody, when they you know, if they're taking a shower in the morning, you know, they turn on the water and what's the first thing they do? Do they throw their body in or do they stick (laughs) their hand in? Test the water. Test the water. They stick their hand in to see how hot is it. But yet it still amazes me that growers will go and take their entire livelihood of their mum crop and throw it into soil and do things, you know, throw fertilizer on it or not throw fertilizer and have no idea if it's too hot or too cold from a fertilizer standpoint in that soil. Are they gonna cook the crop because it's too salty or are they gonna starve it to death because it's basically it's cold without any fertilizer in it? So testing that soil is really critical. Um, you know, you don't have to be really complicated. You know, what I like to do, cause it's just easy, is you um, use a two to one. So you take your coffee cup as you're walking out in, in there, drink your coffee, and then you go and you take and just stick your fingers down in some pots and just take a couple fingerful of soil from along the edge down about halfway and then just throw it into your cup until it's about a third full. Once it's a third full, then when you get back to the um, the um, office, you go and you fill that cup up so that you've got um, the cup full. So you got two parts water to one part soil. So that's a two to one. Um, and then you stir it slightly and then you sit it down on your um, desk and let it sit there until lunchtime. Give it a couple hours. Once it's given a couple hours and you basically the soil should have all settled to the bottom and then you can stick your um, pH probe in there and you can then basically you get a number. 
Now, everyone worries about the number. It's not the number. It's what's the number today relevant to the number yesterday. And what do the plants look like? So if your plants are starving and the number is low, what do you think, Bill? Think they're hungry? Yeah. Yeah. And if, on the other hand, the plants look all hard and salty and they've got bad roots and the number is really high, do you think you got high salts? Probably. Yep. So, you know, you don't have to be, you know, have a PhD to interpret the number. It's just kind of common sense. Um, also, if your number was 12 yesterday and 10 today, that means the plants are probably taking up the fertilizer and you don't have to worry about it. If you basically get 14 today and 30 tomorrow, well, they're not taken up and you probably have got excess or you probably got higher levels of salt in the soil. So, you know, you basically always look at not the number today. You really want to see where's my number today versus yesterday, because that will help you, you know, drive forward and knowing exactly where you need to be. So testing that soil doesn't have to be complicated. You don't have to do a complete soil test and send it off to a lab. And that's complicated. Testing your soil every, you know, three days, at the most frequent, once a week, make it a religious experience, is probably the minimum to know what you're doing. Testing the soil is critical to knowing where you are and what's happening. So that's kind of the first step in um, fertilization is let's test the soil. Now that you know what the number is, now the question is, what should we be doing? You know, do you have slow release fertilizer in that um, soil? Basically, is important to understand because you know it is going to be releasing over time if you haven't put on too much. If you're using a liquid fertilizer, um, you basically have to ask the question if you know if you've got a low EC based on your soil testing, you probably want to fertilize. What do we fertilize with? Okay, let's go back to some topics we talked about in the first um, podcast. Is that you know if you want to get big mums. You want to get them to push. You want to get height. You basically use a fertilizer that has ammonia and phosphorus. Those two combine, combine give you big mums, big leaves, lots of branching, stretch. The more phosphorus you add with the ammonia, the more they will stretch. And it's going to be important to remember that, and we'll talk a little bit more about it um, when we get into the whole height control. So making sure that you've got um, early on, you want to get that ammonia and phosphorus on so that you can get that plant to blow up and get some size on it. Later in the crop, obviously, if it's starting to get tall, you want to start slowing it down. So you want to eliminate or reduce either the phosphorus or the ammonia. Because without both, they won't, you won't see stretch. So um, in that case, you probably go to a nitrate-based feed with just phosphorus um, or nitrate without phosphorus, like a 14-0-14, 15-0-15. Um, and then those, that will basically slow them down and eliminate stress, stretch. So we really want to make sure that we got the right nitrogen. So at this point, if you're starting to try to size these things up, if you've got a lot of crown budding, because as we talked earlier, it was cold, you definitely want to go and get some size on them. So what do you want to do, Bill? Do you want to start pushing them with a lot of um, ammonia and phosphorus? Would that be a good plan? You want to get them big, so yeah. Okay. So when we look at that, we basically look at um, you know which fertilizers can we and should we be using. 2020 has a respectable amount of phosphorus at 200 parts per million. If you go and use 2010-20, you're using less phosphorus and probably about the same amount of ammonia. So that's not going to stretch as much as 2020-20. You go and use like a 14-4-14 or 15-5-15, um, they're going to have even less phosphorus at 200 parts per million, so you're not going to get as much stretch. So if you look at the middle number of that fertilizer, that's the amount of percent phosphorus, at a specific 200 parts per million, the bigger the phosphorus number, the more phosphorus you're going to have, 
the more the plant is going to stretch and fill out faster. So does that kind of give you some guidelines on, you know, which fertilizer to, um, to pick? Yeah, it does. And I, I think that a couple of the, the most important things that, that you said were that, you know, the importance of testing. So, um, and I know that in, in past episodes, we've talked about the importance of measuring EC and we put some links to different EC meters. I know Todd Cavins talked a lot about that and I'll go back and dig those up and make sure that we include those links so that if you need to snag an EC meter on Amazon, that's that's pretty easy to do. But I think that what you said about testing not just that number of what it looks like today, but, you know, against some historical data, you know, what did it look like yesterday or, or three days ago? And to get some comparative data is hugely critical. And then um, the other thing that you said, I think that that kind of goes without saying, but is probably a really good reminder is know what fertilizer you're, you're using. You know, is it a controlled release? Is it a quick hitting liquid? And make sure that your whole team's on the same page yep. because that might not always be the case. Yep. And then the importance of phosphorus certainly to uh, to increase size or to slow down the crop, I think, is is really critical. Another thing that you mentioned that I do want to touch on is if you're going to take a soil sample in your coffee cup, you're probably closer to two parts water, one part soil and a half part like Pike Place roast or Folgers. So <laughs> I don't know how that really factors in, but it's probably something to to take note of as as a coffee drinker. So Well, but if you do it the same way every day, eh. That's that not overthink this. You know, very it's good. Better point. it's better to test than to overthink it. The whole issue. <laughs> That's you know? excellent. Because most people, you know, don't test at all. So if at least we test, then at least we we know where we are because that's that's important. And you know, at the end of the day, we've got to get nitrogen. We got to get phosphorus to get these plants to grow. So let's not overthink it, but let's make sure we're doing it based on the soil test. And, you know, what rate should we use? Should we use 200, 400 parts per million? Um, you know, that your testing will tell you. Um, should you use more fertilizer to get the number higher or should we use less to get the number lower? So, you know, use some common sense there. Um, so that pretty much gets us um, into the fertilizer and, you know, really be vigilant on this fertilizer issue because now once it's starting to warm up at night, um, as we move through late June and July, these plants are going to grow if we feed them. So let's make sure that we feed them so we can get some growth on them. And because of that growth is really what what you're looking at when you're when you're attempting to hit critical sales dates, which is huge when you talk about a a seasonal crop like mums. And I know, a little bit about the importance of graphical tracking, and I and I've seen some of the tools that the Mum team has put together that are going to be released very soon. Hopefully, by the time this podcast launches at BallSeed.com, and um, we'll make sure to put those links in the show notes. But I think when you talk about graphical tracking, I know it's a little bit it can be intimidating for growers. So, what can you do to help demystify this production strategy that the Ball Mum team is working so hard on? Yeah. Um- we, we had one of our whiz, whiz kids, um, Ben, basically um, create a very nice um, Excel spreadsheet where you put in what is the size of the um, pot that you're using because that's, of course, your first amount. And then um, how tall is that cutting? And then finally, what, um, you know, how tall do you want that plant at what date? So you put in a couple of critical pieces of information and it basically creates a line. You print that out and you basically um, have that available out in the, um, you know, in your production area so that you can then go and decide, am I big enough? Am I too, too big? And of course, um, going out and measuring a bunch of plants is kind of a lot of work. So let's make it a little easier, Bill. One of the things that we do is you can make a stick that you stick in, that you set into a pot that basically has, um, you know, you could put little one inch tabs on it going up the stem. Can you kind of picture this, Bill? Yeah, so you can use that coffee stir that you took from your coffee pot. Well, you need need something a little taller than the coffee stirrer, I hope, because uh, I sure hope your pots aren't coffee stirrer size. But, you know, basically, you know, you can use um, like a three or four foot um stick and you stick it out there and you just leave it out there so when you walk by you can see if the and you say if you use one inch tape on it then you can just stack those pieces of one inch tape right up the 
the stick and you write on that whether it's you know six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve thirteen fourteen fifteen all the way up so when you walk by and you see that the six is no longer visible you know that that plant is now six inches tall when it's at 10 is gone you know that the plant is now 10 inches tall and if you know when it starts hitting um, 20 inches tall when you walk by you can see huh okay we're at 20 inches and then you can go and mark it down other people then you know have an actual ruler and they you know record very precise sizes but let's not overthink this let's not overdo it it's just kind of a guide of when you put it on the graph are you above the line too tall or are you below the line at that point in time too short does that make sense bill absolutely no i i think that and you really kind of made it understandable you're looking at the pot size the cutting size optimal size at that date and then use a tomato steak or something that with some hash marks on it to to get a quick uh, visual of, of where you're at and where you're tracking. Right. And because, you know, when, when we're out looking at mums every day, you really don't see any change because you're experiencing it day in and day out. So that's why you have to graphically track the crop. Growers that graphically track the crop basically know exactly where they are or where they should be. Um, you know, one time back in the dark ages, we, we grew all the mums and sold them all at the same time. So it was really easy. Everything was the same. Today, with our scheduled mums, we've got some mums that are going to be shipping as early as, um, frightfully, um, second and third week of July. And then we've got, um, you know, mums that are going to be scheduled for September. So we have this broad window of shipping, and we kind of through the use of different response groups and planting dates, we've planted a whole bunch of different mums out in the field, and we have to try to determine, are we at the right size or not? And that's always been a really hard one to ask, but using this graphical tracking, you can very precisely know where am I, and then based on where you are, we can help you decide what should I do to stay on track? Because you should be right on that line if you're going to hit the um, the optimum um, size at ship date. So that's, keep it simple. Um, try it if you've never done it. Um, I really encourage you to um, use this tool, this Excel um, tool that we've, um, we're going to make available. Anyone that's knowledgeable in Excel will be able to do it themselves, but uh, most of us aren't. So it's a nice um, nifty little tool that he's created. Ben's done a nice job on this one. Awesome. And like I said, I'll make sure to include those links uh, in the show notes. And I think that there's going to be a lot of great new mum information from the Ball Mum team available um, on ballseed.com. So I'll make sure all those links are included. I think just a, a quick question, maybe a little bit of history, just for maybe my own knowledge or some of the listeners who have seen this this occur, but maybe not uh, followed it too closely. I, I think you talked about how mums used to all be shipped at the same time, and now we have early, mid, late season. We've really carved up the season to hit the specific retail timing, a lot like, I think, poinsettias and other seasonal crops. When When did that transition happen? When did we go from shipping everything at once to to really breaking the season down to make sure that they're shipping the right mums at the right time. What was the timeline for that? Well, I think it's um, when all of a sudden the retailers um, realized that mums have a good shelf life for the summer. You know, and so when they were looking to make sure that they had color at retail all summer long for people who came wandering in, um, they realized, oh, well, let's do mums because, you know, they'll look good for, you know, seven, 14 days in retail, depending upon how open they are when they come in. So when would you say, Bill, that, that we started seeing more summer sales or an uptick in summer sales? What was it, about 15 years ago or so? I was so? going to say probably starting in the mid-90s. Yeah. And then up through, yeah, early 2000s. So, yeah, no, that, that makes sense from this kind of a retail timeline. Yeah, because it's really – it's a it's – one of the perfect retail products because it has long, 
large long shelf life. Um, you know, consumers can come in and get some instant um, spot of color to to incorporate into the landscape. Um, they treat them like annuals. You know, because they don't know any difference. Um, the majority of you know, they know their mums. They don't expect them to last forever. They don't expect them to be perennial. Um, they expect them to be give a splash of color and. When they're done, throw them out and start get another one. No, that's true, and I think you see that certainly with the breakdown of sales of of colors of mums that they really are, you know, a late summer leading into fall on the color palette too. So it makes sense that they're kind of treated as annuals in that way. So we talked a little bit earlier about um, fertilizer and you know using fertilizer to increase size or slow down the crop, but I know that this is a really um, this is really important. I think to hit the timing, so. What can growers do in addition to some of some of what you already said about um, keeping mums either holding the size, what to do when they're too big or too little? Are there any tricks that you know or chemicals or fertilizers that can help keep a crop in line or on track just to make sure that they're ready um, for that retail presentation and ultimately the sell through? Okay, let's let's kind of break this down into um, you're doing your graphical tracking and you're tracking above the line, meaning that you're too tall. So hopefully that's one of your um, your problems. Um, and what you need to be looking at is, okay, what are what's driving that tall plant? And of course, we've talked about this is phosphorus and ammonia combination. So therefore, the first thing you want to do is, is if you're using liquid feed, you'd probably want to go um, and find a low or no phosphorus fertilizer, like a 13-2-13 or even a 14-4-14. Both of those are low phosphorus. Um, and then also read the bag and see how much ammonia do they, what percentage of the nitrogen is in the monocle form and what percentage of it is in the nitrate. So if you can have something like 14-0-14 that has zero um, phosphorus and it will have very low or no ammonia in it. So that plant is not going to be stretching due to the fertilizer. It will keep growing, but it's not going to be stretching. It'll be toned down. It'll be hardened off. Also using growth regulators to basically slow the crop down and really, especially if you're starting to um, rocket above that line. So if all of a sudden it's not going up a little bit above the line, but you're now shooting up three, four, five inches above the line and you need to slow it down considerably. In that case, you need to start looking at um, bonsai or paclobutazole, one of the paclobutazoles. Um, and you can either use a spray to slow it down. And when you're using a spray, um, growers are probably using, um, depending upon what their um, experience is, they're using somewhere around um, 10, 15 parts per million to really slow them down. Um, because especially if it's hot, because remember, the higher the temperature, the faster the plant metabolizes the growth regulator. So the hotter it is at night, the more you need to use the growth regulator. So um, if you really have plants that are taking off like a rocket ship and you really need to get them really toned down fast because you're hitting the, the maximum allowable size, then you probably want to get into a drench. And there, a drench of one to six parts per million, um, a lot of growers will be at three and then see what's happening and come back and do another three if needed. Um, that way they can control it better because growth regulators are an art form to help control. So that's if the plants are too big. Now let's flip the size and say, okay, we're under the bar. So that basically you're graphically tracking and we're tracking below the line. So we need to pump these things up and get them to stretch a little bit. If you're just a little bit below the line, then probably just using a 2010-20. So you've got, still got some ammonia, phosphorus. If you've got slow release in there um, and it's still releasing, you've got uh, most likely phosphorus coming out of the slow release fertilizer. So you're getting the phosphorus in there to kind of keep pushing the crop along and it is starting to continue to stretch. If, you, um, <clears throat> if that's not doing it enough, you need to push more feed to um, get more stretch. If you use probably one of your highest phosphorus fertilizer is 9-45-15. It's a really high phosphorus feed, normally a one-time application, and then look to see, okay, are we big enough? Is it moving? 
are they getting bigger? Um, and if they're not, you can come back, you know, a week or so later um, and do another application. But I wouldn't recommend continuous feeding with 945.15 or you're going to quickly jump above the line. And, of course, now you're going to have to fight at the other end of too big. If you're still trying to get a little bit more stretch and you really um, want to use another chemical, you may want to look at using fascination. Um, fascination is a gibberellin. It's a, um, it will help cause this plant to stretch. Um, you've got to make sure that if you haven't used fascination in the past, you may want to just do some trials to kind of get an understanding of how it works. Normally, multiple five part per million applications are desirable um, or even less to just kind of just push the crop a little bit. If you go in there and um, use the old, if a little is good, a lot is better. In this case, not really. Um, you start using, you know, 15, 20, 30 parts per million. What will happen is, is the plants will stretch a lot. You may see the plants, the leaves turning yellow, getting kind of chlorotic. They will come back, but it'll be slow. The worst part is, is that they have kind of a spaghetti stretched look to them and they get a little floppy and if you apply it too late you can start affecting flower buds so um, we do recommend using fascination it's proven to be very successful but you've got to have experience in how to do that correctly so you know knowing where you are from a graphical tracking standpoint you know helps you develop the strategy of am i just a little bit too tall or too short do i need a lot of um, push or just a little bit of push or pull um, to kind of slow them down or speed them up. Does that help, Bill, um, give us some guidelines? Um, and of course, if you've got specific questions of, you know, this is where my height is, this is how many weeks I've got to finish, what should I do, Will? You know, that's where, um, listen, when at the end where we suggest that you, um, you know, you can contact us by email and we can um, get back to you on, you know, what our thoughts are and what our recommendations would be. But there are tools you can use as long as you act early. If you wait until they're fully open, you got color out there, there's not a lot you can do besides get bigger pots to try to get some additional help. So you, now's the time to really know, are we on track? Are we getting to the right size? Because that now you can do something reasonable. As you wait till you've got breaking color or full color, there's not much you can do. No, I think that that's great. So if they're too tall, use phosphorus, uh, reduce your phosphorus, reduce your monocle nitrogen. Um, if they're way too tall, use a paclobutazole spray. And if they're way, way, way too tall, use a paclobutazole drench. And then if they're too short, push the feed. Um, I think uh, which, what you said about just be careful because you don't want to stretch them too much. Um, do an application, then check it. Um, use, you know, when you're using fascination, make sure you're using multiple low part per million applications um, just to avoid any trouble. So I, I think that those are really, really good tips for what I would imagine are pretty common uh, challenges either one way or the other um, with every mum crop. So yeah, and let me just point out is that if you're doing graphical tracking, it's really cool because you can actually see that your strategy worked. Because if you're too tall and you put, um, you know, restrict ammonia and phosphorus, um, you know, reduce, uh, start applying pachyblutasol, all of a sudden the, the, the height just levels off and comes back to the line. So... Can you kind of picture that, Bill? You know, you yeah. left the line, you're going straight up, and all of a sudden you put the treatment on and just basically you don't get any more stretch and it just levels off and time will basically level it off and you're off and running. And the same with is if you're too small, it basically pushes it straight up and then you're right back toward the line and you're off and running. So, you know, you basically, by using graphical tracking, you can tell, did my strategy work? Which is always one of those big question marks Okay, I've done this, does it work? And this graphical tracking will solve that problem for you. No, I think it's excellent. And it's much better to measure things. We, we know this um, from all sorts of different discussions that we've had on STEM is keeping, keeping 
an eye and measuring and really understanding your data is going to be critical to producing this best crop best crop so all right so now let's do a, let's do a quick hit here so we're going to get okay. into a few of the problems to watch for in an effort to get ahead of i don't know i guess those oh crap moments at least with garden mums can't yep. deal with those in people's overall lives you got to deal with those on your own but we can definitely talk garden mums so to start with what can growers do if they see their crop yellowing getting yellow yellowing number one question is are they sitting in water is the soil too wet you know grab that pot pull it off take a look at those roots bear you know make sure that you got roots to the bottom of the pot. If you have a nice green plant and you pull it out and you got roots to the bottom of the pot, roots are nice and white fuzzy, you're good to go. And then you take that yellow pot and you pull the um, plant out of that pot and there's not roots to the bottom and the bottom of the pot is soggy, wet. Um, this is just a pure excess water. Um, you're just too wet. Um, and it could be that you're sitting in water or something. Just move those plants out of there and they'll kind of self-correct. Now, let's not go start doing a lot of crazy stuff. If the whole block is chlorotic, then we basically have to start um, sending some pictures in because chlorotic plants could be iron deficiency or they could be manganese, MN deficiency. And it depends upon if they're yellow on the bottom, could be nitrogen. Are they at the top, iron manganese? Um, so we really need to have a picture to help sort out what is going on when you have big blocks of chlorotic yellow looking plants. Looking at those roots, because if you don't have roots, you're not taking up fertilizer. So you could have a root rot problem in there also. So really the first step when you have yellow is grab that plant, rip it out of the pot, and let's, let's talk roots. So that's the first thing we wanna do. Um, does that kind of give you, give you something to do if you got yellow plants, Bill? Absolutely, and, I, and one of the things that you've already referenced is that Ball Mums does have a, a hotline or a helpline via email where you know if you do see this block of yellow mums, take a photo, get a couple close-ups, shoot it over. Um, we'll have that information here at the end of this episode and certainly in the show notes, and you'll, you'll be able to get a pretty quick uh, diagnosis from an excellent team of experts. Yeah, and one of the things when you take pictures is make sure you look at the picture and, and ask yourself, does this show what I want someone to look at? Because we do get a lot of blurry photos, um, and so we have to guess, and that's never pleasant. No, and I think Will gave you some good tips as well on, you know, is it the top half of the foliage, is it the bottom half, you know, where exactly is that yellowing? So make sure you capture that in any sort of uh, photos that you send in for diagnosis. Yep. So second, oh no moment, bugs. And I know mums yep. are susceptible to insect pests. So what kind of insects are common and how do growers spot them, control them? Um, some of the more, more common uh, things that you see out there in the field. So if you're outside in the out, literally outside, one of the things you really want to watch is uh, your neighbors. Um, you want to make sure you know what's going on around the perimeter of your field. So it's not unreasonable to go and put some yellow sticky cards outside the field to find out what kind of insect pressure is coming at you. Within the field itself, you probably, within your mum field itself, um, whether you're inside a greenhouse or you're basically sitting outside, you really want to basically have someone walking that field. Walking the field to look for leaf miner is always important. Now, we're, you, know, you shouldn't have that. Um, we've had you know, excellent success at um, controlling leaf miner um, for the last couple of years, but if you have leaf miner in the adjacent fields or you're basically, you've got some um, leaf miner hanging around from last year, um, you could end up with a sudden outbreak of leaf miner. Um, and you'll see it because you'll have the little stipules where the you have um, eggs being laid. And then of course you have the um, mines within the leaf. And that that's one that um, if you've got the problem, we can quickly um, talk about. Check for mites, if it ever, um, gets hot or you're in an area where it's very hot and you have a possibility of mites. Mites have been a real problem in flaring up in a number of crops. Um, it's, there's a lot of reasons. Part of it is the chemistry um, you know, has been used extensively and then also a little bit of resistance um, so that we do have a little bit of flare up here, here and there for mites. Just kind of watch out for mites. Um, white fly can also be a problem. So you just want to watch out for that. Um, these are all not pervasive or everywhere, but, but every so often we get phone calls from people that um, just suddenly have it. 
those people outside also have um, aphids from heaven. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but um, you know, up in Minnesota, we would run into this where literally the um, trade winds coming from the south would have aphids from the south. Suddenly, they'd hit a cold front, and suddenly the sky would rain aphids. And suddenly, you were you went out there and went, "Where did all these aphids come from?" But again, walk the fields, make sure that you get on top of them, um, and spray appropriately. Um, but it's normally mums don't have problems, but that's because you're out there walking and looking. No, that's great. And I think, you know, certainly, I mean, I, I don't know a ton, but I do know that certainly with mites and aphids, there is plenty of uh, ways to control uh, those problems in white flies. So, and I'm sure growers have experienced those before on other crops and have uh, pretty good strategies for control. But like Will said, it's really a matter of keeping an eye on the crop so that nothing's going to catch you off guard and be infested. Yep. So in the first episode in this mini series, um, we did talk a little bit about chrysanthemum white rust, a, a disease that does impact mum crops. Um, do you want to touch on this a little bit and, and maybe some other diseases that might pop up during summer mum production? Sure. Um, you know, chrysanthemum white rust, the reason why we mention this um, is not because it's a disease that everyone is experiencing. The reason why we mention this is because if you are found to have chrysanthemum white rust. This is a quarantinable disease by the USDA. And so what happens is basically you have a destroy on-site order issued and basically you lose your entire mum crop. And the really sad part is this is fully preventable. Um, you need to make sure that you're using um, chrysanthemum white rust fungicide control programs. And um, Bill, I think we do have um, some documents on how to control this. So everyone should have a copy of this or should be planning on getting a copy of that. And um, Bill, you'll put the uh, link out there also. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, um, just so you're aware of what the disease is. So if you're spraying a fungicide because you're under a high risk area, where's a higher risk area? We've seen outbreaks in the um, Northeast United States and the Pacific Northwest. Um, those areas where are seem to be, have more problems. If you um, the the challenge is is that there are um, the, the disease will overwinter um, in chrysanthemums that survive and can come back. There's research that has shown that, um, and there's also um, there are alternative crops that will carry this crop, will carry this disease, and then you basically cross-contaminate over to your um, mum crop. So again, it's another one of these scouting. Make sure you're walking around, lifting those little leaves up, looking underneath, um, and seeing if there is any chrysanthemum white rust, which will be on the bottom of the leaf, um, is where you first see it. There's good pictures in the documentation to help you diagnose it and get these things sprayed. So um, hopefully you'll have no idea what we're talking about with this um, chrysanthemum white rust. But if you are in an at-risk area, please um, look at it very carefully. We'd hate for you to lose your crop when the, your neighbor across the street sprayed and basically has had no problem, which is the normal scenario. Um, you know, other diseases, there's um, a whole um, list of um, other diseases. If it's all of a sudden starts getting very, very wet, um, and we have a lot of rain, we start running into a lot of root rot problems. Uh, make sure that you're monitoring those roots regularly, looking to see, do I have roots to the bottom, which is a good thing. Are those roots on the bottom um, nice and white and fluffy? That's an excellent indicator that you have good solid roots and root ruts are not a problem. If you're not seeing roots to the bottom and you've got um, kind of very thin, dead roots that you can kind of slough off. Um, you may want to be looking at a fungicide drench to basically enhance the quality of those roots or some um, spray that will um, control them. There's a number of recommended sprays. If you're unsure, by all means, contact us and we can provide you some specific information for your particular um, location. Um, also, if, it, if we have a lot of um, very wet conditions. There's um, sclerotinia and septoria. There's kind of this host of diseases that are really opportunistic because of the wet, dreary weather um, that might come in. So making sure that you've got a lot of airflow. You know, if you have to, it's better to space them than to spray them. Um, I know that sounds like a lot of work, but normally when you start spraying, you're basically adding more water to a 
disease that needs water to spread. So it's kind of like, you know, the, you know, are we making it better or worse? So making sure you got a lot of airflow around those plants um, will basically cause a lot of problems to just not exist. So let's um, just kind of look, monitor, and if you've got some specific problems that come up, give us a call and we can kind of work through um, what are some strategies to um, reduce or eliminate that disease risk. Awesome. So it's kind of like insects, right? Keep a really close eye on your crop, pull them out yeah. of the pots, check out the yeah. roots, make sure you have good airflow. Um, those are all sort of uh, good best practices, I think, for, for growing any crop. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned the chrysanthemum um, white rust resources. I will make sure to link to those. We do have a document about awareness and a document about management. So um, those are really excellent resources uh, for growers of garden mums. So we're starting to uh, get to the end of the line here. What what have we missed? Are there any other best practices related to getting your mom started or, uh, you know, getting them uh, well down the path to retail that you want to cover quickly before we wrap up? And maybe you can preview just real quickly what listeners can expect to learn in the final part of this mini series that's going to come up next month. Well, I think that we really um, beat a lot of the uh, uh, topics to death, but it always helps to go over them one more time <laughs> um, because, you know, someone said is when you're tired of hearing them is the first time you heard it. Um, so, you know, number one, you know, this entire podcast is about, am I on track? And the only way to know I'm on track is to graph the height, graph your height, and you'll have the ability to make action plans, fertilizer, growth regulators to basically get you on track, monitor the, um, the EC of the soil, you know, just like you're graphing the, um, the height of the plants, graph where you are from an EC standpoint. And that'll tell you whether I'm feeding too much, I'm not feeding enough, and look at the plants and tell me I'm, I'm good or I'm not good. Because if you graph it, you know where you are. What it really does from a management standpoint, by graphing it, it forces the growers to go out and walk through the plants. Plants like people. Plants will grow better if people are out there looking and seeing and realizing when they bump the plants, there's a white cloud of white flies coming out um, versus standing on the edge going, hmm, I wonder if there's any insects in there. Nope, don't see any. Um, so really get out there and um, graph this information, the EC, the height, so that you can have action plans that will be successful. In our next episode, um, what we're really going to do is how do you finish off the year? How do you finish off that mum crop? You know, are you basically, um, did you get the white, did you, were you successful with um, pulling a short day cloth? You know, what kind of delays did you get and why did you get delay? What did you, um, what, what could you do at this point to just basically fine tune or as they say, polish up that crop to make it the best mum crop ever so that it has great um, sales appeal at retail? You know, what do we need to do to make sure that we get the crop that's excellent in the field to look excellent at retail? And how do you um, ensure that it's still going to be good for the consumers so that they'll come back and buy more mums? So I think that's, you know, we've talked about how do you get on track with this one and stay on track. Um, and then the last one is how do we just kind of finish up the crop and be successful? So kind of what we've been talking about, Bill? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it makes, it's kind of a, a funny, um, uh, sort of analogy that, that the next episode is about, we're going to finish up this mini series by finishing up the crops. So um, I, I like the way we've gone. I like how, how, how you've sort of simplified what is a, a long process for an extremely critical crop that many, many growers in North America grow, um, crop that's certainly seen changes, seen a lot of innovation. And I think that's another thing we're going to talk about um, next episode is some of the best new varieties out there as well, because I know that, you know, everybody likes to hear what's new. Um, and certainly the breeding in mums is, uh, you know, like we've talked about with perennials, I think most often is that it's really being bred to solve grower problems and to um, help meet new market needs and market demands. Um, a little bit like we talked about in this episode with the timing and the the mums for early, mid, and late season. So next episode is going to be excellent. This yep. episode was loaded with tons of technical information, but I think in a, in a way that that growers can understand. 
Um, just so much great information, Will. And once again, I, I do really appreciate your expertise on mums and your willingness to join STEM. How can listeners get in touch with you uh, with any questions or, or the MUM team? And are there any resources you want to share to support any of the best practices we went over today? I'll make sure to link to the Chrysanthemum White Rust documents, like we mentioned, and the graphical tracking uh, tool. But is there, you know, what's the best way to get in touch with you and, um, and the MUM team? Okay, well, if you want to um, send a note to the MUM team, and the MUM team is um, basically includes the people who are selecting varieties that are um, involved with the breeding, the stock plant production. Um, we've got a wide range of resources within the ball company. Um, that's If you want to contact that particular group with comments, we'd love to hear your comments about varieties or questions. We've got the people who can answer them. The email that we have is BSC Mum Hotline, one word, at ballhort.com. So let me just repeat that BSC Mum Hotline at ballhort.com. If you have a specific question that you want to ask me, um, my email address is WHEALY at ballhort.com. So um, I, of course, am on the BSC um, MUM hotline. So if you send it to that one, I will, of course, see it. But if you have a specific questions, by all means, contact me. Um, I believe, Bill, that they're um, <clears throat> revising the um, MUM catalog. That will be out um, soon, <clears throat> along with the um, MUM website. Absolutely. Right. Yep. And, yep. and uh, the mum, mum catalog, full catalog published every other year with a, a very in-depth supplement on the off year. And within the catalog is <clears throat> are all of the charts and information that, that I know growers have come to love, um, how to select the right mums for the right time, all of the information on size, you know, is it a, you know, what, what type of mum is it, the timing, the flower dates, the whether it responds to black cloth, the, you know, certainly it's all broken down by color, but also laid out in a very easy to use chart. Also with information about propagation, growing on, all the information that you need to, to produce the crop um, between two covers. I know that the, everybody looks forward to the, the new MUM catalog and um, like Will mentioned, it will be out. Um, they are, they tend to be released toward the end of the summer each year. So you've got a MUM hotline, You've got Will's email address. You've got uh, a news subpage coming at ballseed.com, all dedicated to mums, a fantastic mum team. Um, I don't uh, see any reason why um, you, you should have any problem getting all the information you need about your ball mums. So again, thank you so much, Will. And remember, Will and I are going to be back in a month or so with the final part of this mini-series, so stay tuned. But for now, follow Will's advice to stay on track with mum production and stop any problems before they get out of control. Get out, walk those crops, you know, take a look at the plants, uh, try to try to track them. Um, this could be a first uh, step in a first year to, to working with this graphical tracking tool. And by the time you're done um, this year with some, some practice, next year will be so much easier um, using some of this information that, that will uh, let, us, let us sort of clued us into today and be sure to share this episode with your entire production team who's going to be required for the success of your garden mum crop and dr will and i'll be back in august to talk about a strong finish and proper timing of your mum crop and again thank you so much will for being with us thanks so much for listening to stem insider tips for Greenhouse Pros, and special thanks for helping us reach 10,000 downloads. That's a huge milestone in the podcasting world. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to subscribe and give it a good rating on your podcast player, or better yet, write a quick review or share with your coworkers and peers. This will help expose more potential listeners to STEM. We really appreciate the support. I'm your host, Bill Calkins, and you can always reach me by email at bcalkins at ballhort.com. That's B-C-A-L-K-I-N-S at B-A-L-L-H-O-R-T dot com. Be sure to follow Ball Seed on LinkedIn for tons of B2B content related to STEM topics. 
timely technical tips from guests like Will, and more. And now you can follow STEM Greenhouse Podcast on Instagram. That's STEM Greenhouse Podcast, all one term, for behind-the-scenes looks, sneak peeks, and all sorts of good stuff. Let's end this episode with a quote about planning for success from motivational expert Brian Tracy. A clear vision, backed by definite plans, gives you a tremendous feeling of confidence and personal power.